Despite being one of the most well-documented and discussed periods of history, the true roots of the French Revolution and Napoleonic era remains largely obscured. As his book will make abundantly clear, that is no mere accident. Discover the conspiracy at the heart of one of the bloodiest eras in human history. In Anatomy of a Revolution, the true story of the French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars by Scipio Eruditus. Available exclusively at thefirmamentalpodcast.com. You know something is wrong. You can see it all around you. You're wondering how things got to this point. Good is called evil and evil is called good. You want to truly know why we got to the brink of the abyss? Can't just be told. You must see it for yourself. I'm Scipio Eruditus, and this is Dispatches from Reality. dispatchers, my listeners, I am your author, your narrator, your host, Scipio Eruditus, and today's topic, today's issue is one that has truly jumped out at me the last year, and something that I've been studying in quite meticulous detail now for the better part of the last decade, and I can truly say it's only after it is only after extensive and extensive study, and, and even with all the studying I was doing, it was not, I believe, until the Holy Spirit finally opened my eyes to some things, and some of these final puzzle pieces clicked into place that I that I fully realized how how deeply the church has been deceived. And today's topic, today's issue, again, one that just cannot be avoided in today's day and age, and particularly as we are seeing what is unfolding in Gaza. Uh, what's been done to the Palestinian people the last 80 years, what's going on to the Gazans right now is uh, nothing less than a genocide, nothing less than ethnic cleansing. And as of today, we have 28,000 dead Gazans. 70% are women and children. What is going on in Israel right now, this place called Israel, is vile, evil, disgusting. And the response I have seen within the Christian community is uh, disheartening, does not accurate you know accurately quantify my emotions on this uh repugnant might be a better word it is one of the most vile reactions i've ever seen i know i'm not the only one seeing this uh, i know there are a lot of christians that are beginning to wake up and beginning to realize uh, what is actually going on here and they are starting to ask questions, and they are starting to reanalyze some of these 
catechisms that we have been told, right? Oh, well, these are God's people, and we got to bless them, so we'll be blessed. I ask you, does America look blessed to you? Materially, sure, right? Uh, materially, we may think that we have some blessings. I mean, materially, we are more destitute and decrepit than our forefathers a hundred years ago. Oh, yeah, they didn't have Spotify. They didn't have XYZ or this. I mean, most of these things are leveraged on debt. The people don't actually own them. If the bank ever called in the note, (laughs) these boats, these cars, these fancy houses, this fancy living, it'd be gone in an instant. What you think you have, you do not have. And so these blessings that we think we have, they are ashes in our mouth. What have we paid? What price have we paid? for those supposed blessings. No, um, I know I've talked about it for a while, and uh, this episode is, uh, consider it a, an introduction to the series of essays we're going to be, um, you know, I'm going to be publishing shortly here, and something that I've been, <laughs> you know, not putting off necessarily, but uh, just as I find more and more sources and more and more information, I mean, this I had no idea. <laughs> Truly, I had no idea even how deep the rabbit hole went on some of this uh, this doctrine called dispensationalism, which, uh, let's, I guess, before we get into that, let's define some of our terms here. So today's essay, uh, That Wicked Generation, is going to be the most eschatology-heavy uh, essay I've done so far. Um, now, eschatology, uh, for those uh, who are unaware, is just simply a theological term meaning the study of end times. And so really, before we get into any kind of discussion on um, on these kinds of matters of what are admittedly very contentious uh, issues of interpretation, and, you know, before I get into any of that, what we really need to discuss is the reason we are coming to such different conclusions, why so many people, right, are, are reading the Bible and coming to vastly different conclusions is it's not because the Bible's saying a bunch of different things, right? The Bible says what it says. And now we, depending on the time period we are in, the culture we are in, uh, we read things into the text. We make assumptions, cultural assumptions that uh, they did not think of, right? That they didn't consider. Um, I think a you know a perfect example of this is just how quickly language has changed. And I, uh, in my previous essay uh, on usury, uh, alchemical weapons for uh, economic wars, you know, I shown how quickly the language. I mean, just in a hundred years, how vastly different the definitions of words have changed. And this is just in the English English language alone. Excuse me. <laughs> and so I uh, just imagine from trans transliteration from from multiple different languages. Right, and so clearly there's going to be misunderstandings. There's going to be um, things that we have read into the text, and that if you read the words of the apostles, if you read the words of Jesus, uh, this is not the way that they interpreted some of these things or considered some of these things. And so, for these kinds of matters, um, particularly as I am, I'm not a dispensationalist, and frankly, I am. Uh, the more and more I read about it, the more and more I am convinced that it is a very dangerous heresy. And I don't say that to cast aspersions or judgment on any of my audience. I'm sure there's a huge chunk of you 
who uh, fall into this camp because this is the predominant uh, eschatological belief system within the church uh, right now, unfortunately. Um, but as we will see in my future essays, and you know, as we'll see in this essay, um, what we have been told this timeline of uh, you know these, uh, even the term itself, dispensation, right? You're like, ah, oh, well, that's a word that's in the Bible, right? Sure, it is in the Bible, but it doesn't mean what the dispensationalists claim that it means. So quite famously, right, um, Paul says that he's been given the dispensation of grace. And so this has been, this word dispensation, when it's used by the dispensationalists, is that this means different eras. And so in Schofield's reference Bible, now, he lays out seven different eras. If you talk to dispensationalists, um, there are, I've seen three, I've seen eight, I've seen lectures by dispensationalists where they will claim that there can be any amount, uh, as many dispensations as you want. Um, This is a term that is made up. So, of course, you can make it mean whatever you want to mean. Uh, Now, Schofield laid out the seven dispensations, and he said, right, using this verse from Paul here, where he talks about the dispensation of grace that's been given to him, uh, Schofield misinterprets this and uses this to apply to like these seven church ages, right? Or not church ages, but these seven ages in which God deals with mankind differently. This is according to Schofield and the uh, dispensationalist uh, doctrine. Now, you're going to have a very hard time finding any of these dispensations in the Bible, right? And you're going to have a hard time finding ways that God deals differently with people. And uh, really the only distinction that I see in the Bible is the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And now, even within that distinction, there is a fundamental thread underlying the entire Bible, is that God has not dealt differently with mankind. It has always been through faith that people are saved. It was Abraham, a Gentile, who was saved by faith. Right? Galatians goes through this, Romans, uh, you know, the letter to the Hebrews. Um, again, a topic I've covered in a previous essay, not going to belabor here. But for the dispensationalists, that word, dispensation, does not even mean what they claim it means. It does not mean epochs or ages or eras or whatever have you. That word dispensation in the Greek is okonomia, which is where we get the word economy for. And so in the Greek, it more literally means administration or duty. And so what Paul is saying is that not that he is is in, you know, the church age now. He's in the age of grace, the dispensation of grace. What Paul is saying is that he's been given the duty, the administration of grace. It is his job as the (laughs) apostle to the Gentiles to administer, to dispense, right? This message to the Gentiles. And so that is quite literally what the word means, and that's what it means in context. And every other, there's four verses where that word, ekonomia, shows up in the New Testament in the Greek. And every single one of those times, it's used in precisely the same manner, is that we're talking about an administration. We're talking about a duty. We're not talking about different ages, eras, what have you, right? These are just fundamental, I mean, I would say a misunderstanding, um, but a lot of people, the more and more I found is that a lot of the the teachers 
of dispensationalism, they know this and they understand it. Uh, but um, I, I, again, I, I, I can't rationalize the kind of leaps in logic, but I'm just trying to faithfully and accurately represent what they believe. Now, again, you can't find any Bible verses that talk about this concept. You can't find any Bible verses that specifically identify any of these dispensations, quote-unquote. Schofield, uh, for his first dispensation, he said it was the age of innocence. And he cites the commandment by God to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Again, how is this a, a different way that God is interacting with humans, right? When Adam and Eve broke, when they broke God's commandments, they were cast out. Um, and again, we see very interestingly in, in Genesis um, chapter 3, at the end of Genesis chapter 3 there, where God sacrifices the animal to cover Adam and Eve's shame, right? To cover their sin. We see a, an image of the sacrificial Christ from the very beginning of Genesis. And so, this is something, again, how did Abel know, right, to do the blood sacrifices? Who taught him? I mean, it had to have been his father, right? Who was taught by God. Now, we know those sacrifices have been done away with, with the sacrifice of Christ, but even from the very beginning of Genesis, right, we're not seeing a, a fundamental difference in how God is operating with humanity. It requires faith, right? It requires obedience to God's commandments. Cain's sacrifices were not acceptable. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> something I could really go into the weeds in and plan on in the future. Uh, but just to really start from the outset, right, even the term dispensationalism is a misapplication what I would call wrongly dividing the word of truth, right? That's a phrase that the dispensationalists love to throw out, rightly dividing, you know? And now, again, another misinterpret, you know, misinterpretation, actually, right? Is what that verse is talking about here is properly handling the word of God and studying so that you can apply it properly and correctly, rightly dividing, right? Not what has been misconstrued in the modern sense is that uh, well, these parts of the Bible are for us, and these parts are not for us, and et cetera, et cetera. Again, that Second Timothy, that letter to, uh, that Paul writes to Timothy, very likely a Gentile, um, Paul writes to Timothy that all Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction, so that the man of God may be perfect in all his ways. Okay, when Paul is writing this, the New Testament has not been collated yet. It hasn't even fully been written yet. We, I mean, you know, we still have, there's still books to be written yet. So when Paul is talking about all of scripture, he's not talking about the new, I mean, obviously that scripture applies to the new Testament as well. Every word of God is inspired. But when Paul is talking to Timothy here, that all scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, he's talking about the old Testament. So no, I reject the notion that there are poor, you know, portions of the Bible that are for us and not for us. Um, obviously, we are not, you know, we're not going to be out here doing animal sacrifices or something, right? Although, you know, <laughs> um, depending on the school of dispensationalist thought, there's plenty of them that think, uh, you know, according to their interpretation of, uh, you know, I think it's Ezekiel 33. Um, and this is a classic dispensationalist belief that Schofield taught as well, is that actually when there's the supposed third temple, 
that there will be animal sacrifices reinstated in this temple. And that's talked about as a good thing, actually, by the dispensationalists, and not vile blasphemy and a total denigration of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. I mean, it's even more kind of crazy, actually, if you read that, you know, uh, Ezekiel 33, that the high priest that's offering those sacrifices, um, that that high priest would be Jesus in this instance. But again, um, I guess before getting into too many of the, the different ways, man, I could I could go on and on and on about this stuff. But suffice it to say, today's essay is going to be exploring this idea and this concept of when the Great Tribulation actually was. And so, as we will explore in what I believe the wording of Scripture makes fairly clear, um, is that that occurred in 70 AD. Over and over and over and over again. You know, the title of this essay. It's called This Generation, right? Because Jesus is laying out throughout his ministry very specific indictments of the Pharisees of the Judeans, and there are crimes that they have committed that they will and must be held accountable for. And those are Jesus' own words. And so, we know, we get back again to this hermeneutical approach, how we are interpreting the Bible. And for the dispensationalists, uh, you know, what will often be claimed is that they interpret the Bible literally, right? So we find that that's just not the case. Um, Honestly, no one interprets the Bible 100% literally. No one does that, right? There are, and this is something I've talked about before, but I make the point again and again because it, this is just kind of like overlooked. And despite the, the claims that, oh, we interpret the Bible literally, you don't. <laughs> no one does, okay? So that just this claim, right, that, oh, well, we interpret it literally and that's the better way. Again, no, there's nowhere in Scripture where you can point to me and show me, oh, this is, the, the literal approach is the only way that you can understand it and interpret it. In fact, I would argue that's the wrong way, particularly for a lot of the, a lot of the prophetic imagery that we see. We know that the earth, these are symbols. I mean, Scripture says, when the prophets were prophesying, they did not know what they were prophesying about. And this is clear from the text itself, the context. You can see, you know, Daniel's asking questions, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they're asking questions, John's asking questions. They don't know what they're seeing, right? They're seeing these visions. They don't, they're not interpreting them in the most literal sense. And just to show you, right, how the dispensationalists, excuse me, the dispensationalists are also not interpreting this in the most literal sense. I mean, look at any of the beasts of Revelation. I mean... No one is arguing, right, that there is a, a literally going to be a four-headed beast rising up or, you know, something with ten horns and seven crowns or, you know, from Revelation chapter 9, for instance, the uh, locusts that descend from the bottomless pit. Um, now, there are certain dispensationalists who will stick to that and they will say, yep, this is actually just locusts with the hair of women and the faces of men and, you know, breastplates of bronze and, you know, teeth of iron. Very rarely, though, right? And at least they're being intellectually honest. I think they're wrong, but they are intellectually honest to their hermeneutic, to their detriment, I believe. But most of the dispensationalists will not go that far, right? They'll say, oh, yes, this is, uh, I think it's John Hagee, uh, you know, one of the most notorious of these folks. Uh, he 
likened these locusts to Black Hawk helicopters. And uh, that's been actually a pretty general, um, like a pretty general take, you know, not the Blackhawks, but uh, that the locusts have been some kind of military weapon. A lot of commentators uh, have agreed with that. So uh, John Hague is actually not that far out of the, the realm of, you know, orthodoxy on this particular issue. Um, but it just, that just goes to show you, right? Like There are clearly symbolic representations here and symbolic imagery here that are not to be interpreted in the most literal manner. And no one has, and no one ever really did, until Darby and eventually Schofield popularized this, um, again, what I think is a very flawed hermeneutic, and, and not a consistent hermeneutic, since even the people who are touting that, you know, this is, we apply it all literally, are not even a doing so. And this is really where we get the, this is where we get the logger jams, right? This is why so many people are coming to such fundamental different understandings of these issues. And so that is why I wanted to address some of that stuff a little bit more in depth before we get into this, because my hermeneutic when I am reading the Bible is that when I am trying to read it in its most literal sense, when that is appropriate, right? Now, when that is appropriate, depends. Now, I'm not one of these who say, oh, there's different genres of literature, so we have to interpret them in different ways. I think that's another man-made heuristic or hermeneutic uh, to interpret scripture by. Uh, Now, my my hermeneutic and what I interpret scripture by is that I believe that Jesus, the apostles, that their opinions are inspired when they are writing them within scripture. So if Peter, if Paul, if Jesus is interpreting a Old Testament prophecy in a spiritual light, in a spiritual lens, then I am forced to interpret it in the same manner. So in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is talking about Christ ascending to the throne of David, and he's talking about the throne of David, intimating that it is in the heavenly realms, right? That the throne of David is actually a heavenly realm and not a physical throne. This promise, the Davidic covenant that was prophesied, uh, you know, first by Samuel and then also David. Peter makes P- Peter interprets this in a spiritual lens, in a spiritual light, and not the only place in Scripture that we see that. Right? I think it's actually quite interesting. Um, there are several prophecies that seem to preclude the possibility that the throne of David could actually be a physical throne. Right? Um, Hebrews 8.4, if Christ was, Christ could not be a priest on earth under the Levitical priesthood. He is a priest of the order of Melchizedek, which goes back to Genesis chapter 14. And so being in the order of Melchizedek, as the author of Hebrews, I believe is Paul, um, as he describes, uh, the Melchizedekian order is higher than the Levitical priesthood. And so there is you know, Jesus is not of the order of Levi. If he was on the earth, if, like the dispensationalists claim, that the law is going to be reinstated and there's going to be literal animal sacrifices in a literal third temple, Jesus could not be the high priest proceeding over that because he is not of the Levitical priesthood. He is from the house of David. And yet another, under the Mosaic covenant, the king could not do the duties of the priest. And the priest obviously cannot do the duties of the king. These are two separate positions. There is, you know, interestingly enough, a separation of church and state. 
within ancient Israel. There is this delineation between the religious authorities and the ruling authorities. Now, the ruling authorities obviously have to follow by God's laws, and they were punished for not doing so. But there are, in the most literal sense, some of these things are impossible. And that's, again, from God's own words. So, God cannot be a liar. And if Peter is interpreting these things in a spiritual manner, and if we have prophecies and scripture and laws and God's word that have stated, well, these, these are the qualifications to be a, a priest on earth under the Levitical priesthood. These are impossibilities. So I think it's very interesting, very interesting note. But again, that is my hermeneutic. When the apostles spiritualize something, when, I, when the New Testament is interpreting the Old Testament, that is what I go by. Right, Because we know there was a veil placed over the eyes of the ancient Israelites. They did not understand what they did not understand the, the totality of what was being prophesied of. Now, if you go back and you read the scripture, the Gentiles being part of the kingdom of God, of worshiping at the house of the God, of worshiping at Zion, tons of scriptures, right? So this idea. That this was, and, and plenty of you know Bible stories too. Look at you know Ruth, um, and uh, Jonah, right with the Ninevites. Uh, this was even in the Old Testament. This was never just for Israel. These things were never just for Israel. It was the goal, even under the Mosaic covenant. The idea was that Israel would be renewed, and that they would spread this message, and they would proselytize the nations. That was the goal, right? Now, as we know. That was not going to come to pass, and that the law was a school teacher to bring us to Christ, to show us that we cannot do any of this through our own power, through our own will. For me, I hold the words of the apostles of Jesus in extremely high regard. And so when they interpret these things in a certain manner, I am forced to interpret these things in a certain manner. And I do believe that we should interpret the scripture in a literal fashion as much as you can, right? But there are certain parts and certain portions that should not be interpreted in that manner. Now, when Jesus says this generation almost 30 different times in the Gospels alone, I am interpreting that that literally, right? I'm interpreting it to mean, okay, well, it's this generation. When Jesus says, there are some of you that shall not taste death before you see the, come of the Son of Man coming in the clouds with his glory. So you see the kingdom, you know, the different gospels word it slightly differently. It's talking about the kingdom. Jesus says, there are some of you who will not taste death until you see that kingdom come. That's a very, very specific timeline we've been given. And in the most literal sense of the word, you would interpret it to mean this generation. Now, of course, the dispensationalists will not interpret it in that manner. And as we see yet again, the claim that, oh, we, we interpret the Bible literally, it's just not true. Right? It's just not true. And there's just kind of no way to sidestep or get around that one. And yeah, this has been a little bit of a longer one, a little bit of a longer introduction. But, um, you know, before we get into the further research section, but I wanted to talk about some of those things and clarify some of them 
and get my thoughts out, you know, more so you can understand where I'm coming from and uh, how I approach some of these topics, right? Because um, obviously we all have very, we all have very different understandings. We're all coming from very different places, and mostly, um, mostly what I want to do here is that I do believe that dispensationalism is a dangerous, a historical, and unbiblical heresy. The more and more we dig into it, the more and more you analyze the claims. I mean, the idea that we're going to be bringing back the Mosaic Covenant, and this is like a good thing that animal sacrifices are having again, that are happening again, is just, you know, I, I'm trying to come at this right, and I want, I know, I, I know there are some people who are going to take great umbrage to this, but um, there's just no other way that I can really come at this issue. I feel that. Um, I feel that I've been given a level of knowledge about this that inquire, requires and impels me to act. And this essay is, I guess, the opening salvo in the deconstruction of dispensationalism. So our further research section here. Now, this essay, I talk about the destruction of Jerusalem quite a bit. And so uh, Pastor Chuck Baldwin of uh, Liberty Fellowship in Kalispell, Montana, uh, man, just one of the one of the last real pastors out there. Highly recommend his teachings, his messages. Uh, he has certainly edified me and uh, helped me, you know, help my knowledge of some of these uh, issues increase tremendously. And his sermon on the destruction of Jerusalem is, I mean, bar none, bar none. So, if you are not familiar with the destruction of Jerusalem, I touch on it very slightly in this essay, uh, but he goes much more into depth. Highly recommend it. And then so, of course, we got a whole lot of Bible in this Bible commentary essay, and uh, my preferred version, the 1611 KJV. A whole other different rabbit trail we're not going to go down. (laughs) Uh, Right? I mean, yeah, this, uh, really all my explorations of these biblical topics and depth in this manner began, I was just curious, why were the Apocrypha removed from the KJV? Oh, man, you think... <laughs> such an innocuous question, right? <laughs> oh, man, if only, if only. You know, uh, so next up here, we have the Judeo-Christian Tradition by Dr. Gary North. And as Dr. Gary North explores in this book, uh, that is an oxymoron. Uh, there, is, uh, there is no Judeo-Christian anything, right? Uh, Judaism is inherently contradictory. To Christianity, uh, Talmudic uh, Judaism, right? Uh, this is what we're talking about. Uh, we're not talking about the Old Testament. I mean, first of all, as the New Testament explains over and over and over again, you are a Jew, not outwardly, but inwardly, circumcised of the heart, not of the flesh. So just because you claim a lineage or you claim, oh, etc., we've been here, I got my ancestors going back to, you know, Moses, um, <laughs> just because you claim something does not make it so, right? And so this book, expertly, expertly, uh, kind of breaking down what it's just a, uh, I mean, Judeo-Christian makes about as much sense as uh, Luciferian Christian, right? These things are incompatible with each other. Next up, we have The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit and Its Impact on World History by E. Michael Jones. A uh, uh, This is just like a, a tome, right? I mean... Over a thousand pages, um, a monster, monster of a book, meticulously cited. But uh, Dr. Jones's thesis here is a 
an interesting one and I think a compelling one once you look at the totality of the evidence. And so uh, his thesis is that when the Jews rejected Christ as the Messiah, they have rejected the fundamental logos, the fundamental logic undergirding all of civilization, all of creation, right? Christ is the, he is, he is everything. He is everything we see. He is the logic by which all of creation is held together. And so when we rebel against that logic, it is only naturally going to manifest itself in these aberrant and antisocial ideologies. And so what you know Dr. Jones argues and what I would agree is that really you know Talmudic, you know this Babylonian uh, inspired Judaism is I mean is Gnosticism in its most pure form. And uh the more you know I don't encourage it but uh you know, if you read the Kabbalah, uh, if you read any of these kinds of texts, that is just uh, abundantly clear. Next up here, we have The Seventy Weeks and the Great Tribulation by Philip Morrow. Uh, I've mentioned this book several times. Uh, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, Philip Morrow was... Philip Morrow's one of the teachers um, that was instrumental in kind of waking my eyes up to the dangers of this ideology. And uh, Philip Marr is a very, very interesting character, uh, very interesting, um, just a very interesting life story, honestly. And so um, his, uh, his book, written during the advent of dispensationalism, written shortly after the publication of the first Schofield Reference Bible. And so I think not only does, you know, Mr. Morrow come at these issues from a you know a biblical lens and purely relying on uh the bible right scripture interpreting scripture to prove itself not only that but he specifically addresses a lot of the claims of the dispensationalists in regards to daniel 70 weeks and the timing of the great tribulation so you know this concept and this idea of this generation and christ over and over and over again talking about this generation right? Specific generation that he was talking to. Uh, but when we get to the Olivet Discourse, right, this generation means some other future generation thousands of years from now. I mean, that grammatically, logically, I think scripturally, doesn't hold water. And uh, Philip Morrow's book here, The 70 Weeks and the Great Tribulation, I mean, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's the best eschatology book uh, I've read in my life, um, just hands down. A uh, huge fan of Mr. Morrow's work. And then next up here, we have The Wars of the Jews by Flavius Josephus, uh, which is quoted from quite significantly within this essay, uh, because it is quite astounding, honestly. Um, you know, as I'll explore a little bit more in the essay, but Josephus was a Pharisee. He had no idea of the prophecies that Jesus had laid out here for the destruction of Jerusalem and that John the Baptist had laid out. Uh, he had no idea of any of these prophecies that Jesus had made during his ministry. And yet, as he is recording the destruction of Jerusalem, I mean, some of these scenes are almost verbatim, verbatim what Christ would prof prophesy about. And so it's just, it's astounding. I mean, these are one of these things, right? I'm just, 
I'm, I'm amazed now. I'm like, I'm totally amazed at how this pivotal event, the destruction of Jerusalem, I would argue a good chunk of the people in this audience have never even heard of this event. They've never heard a sermon on it. They've never heard a pastor talk about it. You're like the destruction of, you know, yeah, we know the destruction of the temple, right? You know, we, you know, they know about it maybe tangentially, but they don't know anything about it. And they've certainly never heard a pastor talk about it. And so, yeah, which is why I included Pastor Baldwin's sermon on it. I mean, it's, this is just something that does not by itself prove any of the claims. I believe the timing of Scripture makes it clear when these things are going to happen, right? The timing that Jesus lays out is a timing that is seemingly incipient. So I don't, you know, obviously (laughs) Josephus is nowhere near the level of Scripture, um, but I don't think it's an accident that I believe it was the Apostle John who encouraged Josephus to uh, to write and to catalog these events. So, yeah, Flavius Josephus's work, um, a if nothing else, an important historical look into this time period and the thought processes that drove, you know, why why did the church for eighteen hundred years consider that we were in the kingdom age? I mean, not you know in totality, but fairly universally. You know, it's not, these ideas didn't just spring up out of the ether, right? <laughs> they came from somewhere. They had these ideas, I believe, because that is what Scripture is telling us. And so, lastly here, we have uh, Matthew Henry's commentary on Matthew 23. And uh, I'm a big fan of Matthew Henry's uh, commentary. Uh, one of the, uh, just one of the premier uh, Bible, uh, you know, theologians uh, throughout history. And uh, his commentary on Matthew 23 is exceptional. So I include the totality of Matthew 23 in this essay, and yeah, for those of you who are wanting to explore that particular chapter more in depth, uh, you know, there is a a lot of accusations that Jesus lays down. There is a lot of, there is a lot of the traditions of the elders that Jesus is addressing and attacking, right? That we are, you know, since these are never specifically talked about in the Old Testament, and they are all rabbinical teachings, um, if you are have not studied any of the you know the teachings of the rabbis of the Talmud, uh, then some of these things right you're not you know exactly familiar with them. Um, but again, a um, ton of research, very broad topic. Um, I know I've given a ton of info for this one, and as always, I encourage you to reach out. I love having conversations about this stuff. I love talking with people about these kinds of issues. So before we get into the reading of the essay, I just want to give a shout out. Um, I mean, this week's been a super, super busy week. Um, Tons of new subscribers and, uh, you know, several new paying ones as well. I want to give a shout out to Carrie and read her great note here. Uh, I heard your interview with Maria Z and looked further into all of your work. Thank you for searching and for being led to expose the hidden things of darkness and bring them to light. Well, Carrie, thank you, and that's precisely that's precisely what I am all about, right? We are trying to uh, we are trying to br- bring the things of the darkness out into light, and um, I believe that this issue today is is one of those topics that has been uh, we have been in the dark about. And so then, uh, also a couple comments, short comments from uh, you know, Spotify commentators, uh, Luke Kimbrough. 
Uh, I said, uh, you know, the intro was awesome. Hey, Luke, thanks, man. Appreciate it. And then uh, MDMP22, awesome episode, uh, talking about the interview with Josh Monday and the uh, Christian Conspiracy Podcast, uh, which, yeah, big fan of Mr. Monday's work. And that was a just, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a better breakdown of uh, biblical cosmology in such a compact format. I highly recommend uh, Mr. Monday's work. That guy is, uh, he's doing the Lord the work out there. And uh, God bless him. So, as always, like, subscribe. If you appreciate what we're doing here, uh, consider becoming a, a paid subscriber. Uh, if not, leave a five-star review, like, share, subscribe, all that fun stuff. We know social media is rigged. Uh, the algorithms are definitely not going to be helping this kind of content. So we are relying upon you to uh, spread the word, to spread the message here. And that's really, you know, all the information I provide is free. I don't paywall any of my content. I don't, uh, I don't believe in that personally. And so uh, really all I ask of you, right, is, man, you got a wealth of information at your fingertips. And uh, yeah, just spread it around. Knowledge is a weapon and uh, we must arm ourselves. Without further ado, I'm going to be reading from my November 14th, 2023 essay, That Wicked Generation. Quote, For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always, for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. First Epistle to the Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. End quote. It is not even a question whether Christ would have been branded as a bigot were he among us in the flesh today. The European Jewish Congress has already stated that the New Testament, quote, needs to be scrutinized for anti-Semitic contents, end quote. The Gospels have been lambasted by generations of antichrists as, quote, anti-Jewish slander. Handel's Messiah, a celebration of Jesus Christ and the destruction of the Second Temple, has been called a, quote, anti-Semitic screed, end quote. If I am likewise slandered by the enemies of God for speaking these truths, then I gladly accept such slings and arrows in his service. And there are some 450 verses within the New Testament that state the Judeans and Pharisees are vipers, poisonous snakes, whitewashed tombs, hard-hearted hypocrites, thieves, robbers, or the blind leading the blind. The Gospel of John states that God's word and God's love are not with the Judeans that none of the Judeans do what is written in the Torah, that they know neither Jesus nor the Father, that they reject the commandments, and they reject God's divine purpose. On multiple occasions throughout his ministry, they plot to kill the Messiah, which they eventually succeed in doing, to their everlasting shame. The word generation, or genea in Greek, appears in 27 verses in between the four Gospels. Twenty-three of those verses are a direct reference to the faithless, adulterous, wicked, evil, childish, sinful, perverse, and viperous generation 
of Pharisees and Judeans who rejected their Messiah in the flesh. A generation of religious leaders so filled with evil that Christ called them sons of the devil. Quote, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar, and the father of it. The Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 44, end quote. It is for these reasons, primarily of which was the murder of their Messiah, that the second temple was destroyed in 70 AD, as foretold by the prophets Daniel, Zechariah, Malachi, and later John the Baptist and Christ himself. As always, I prefer to inject as little of my own commentary as possible. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Hebrews 4.12 From the very first chapters of the New Testament, we are given a glimpse of the incipient wrath to come upon this generation. Quote, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you, that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth not forth good fruits is hewn down, and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Likewise, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, also detail this prophecy. The imagery of the root and branch is one seen throughout both the Old Testament and New Testament as a repeated symbol for the physical Israel. That wrath the baptizer foretells of in Matthew 3, 7, or gay in the Greek, is the same word for wrath that Paul speaks of in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16. This warning by John of the baptism by hellfire that was to come is nearly verbatim what Malachi would prophesy roughly 420 years before the birth of Christ. Quote, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The book of Malachi, chapter 4, verses 1 and verse 5. End quote. The archangel Gabriel, the messenger of the Christ, explicitly confirms that this prophecy is about John the Baptist in Luke, chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. Indeed, it is on no less authority than Christ's that we are told that John the Baptist is the second coming of Elias, the Hellenic form of Elijah, in Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 through 13. 
The judgments and rebukes that Jesus Christ also lays upon this generation of Judeans are nothing less than scathing. Quote, But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. And the Lord said, Whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation, and to what are they like? They are like unto children sitting in the marketplace, and calling one to another, and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned to you, and ye have not wept. Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 30 through 32. End quote. This event is also recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 16 through 17. As his prophets foretold, Christ knew that he would suffer this generation to reject him as well. Quote, and when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And he said unto the disciples, The days will come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and ye shall not see it. And they shall say to you, See here or see there, Go not after them, nor follow them. For as the lightning that lighteneth out of the one part of under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. But first, must he suffer many things, and be rejected of this generation. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verses 20 through 25. End quote. Not only are they called childish, but perverse and faithless. Quote, and then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, verse 17. Quote. Truly, how could this generation of deniers be described as anything other than faithless? After witnessing Christ heal the lame, the deaf, the blind, and the demoniacs with their own eyes. This rebuking is also mentioned in Luke chapter 9, verses 41, and Mark chapter 9, verse 19. Yet, the Pharisees and Judeans continually asked for an even greater sign. Quote, and the Pharisees came forth and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit, and saith, Why doth this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 11 through 12. Quote. Christ then warns of the eventual fate of those who do not heed his words. Quote, Whosoever, therefore, shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. End quote. In one of the lengthier diatribes against the Pharisees, Christ explicitly lays out the judgment that is to come upon them. Quote, Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. 
For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation, and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation, and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest, and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then goeth he, and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 33 through 45. End quote. Verses 41 and 42 were quite literally fulfilled during the siege and destruction of Jerusalem, as the Syrians and Arabians were among the auxiliary forces in Vespasian's army. Quote, but here a worse fate accompanying these then what they had found within the city. And they met with a quicker dispatch from the too great abundance they had among the Romans than they could have done from the famine among the Jews. The multitude of the Arabians with the Syrians cut up those that came as supplicants and searched their bellies. Flavius Josephus, The War of the Jews, Book 5. Quote. This rebuking is also told of by Luke in his Gospel account. Quote, and when the people were gathered thick together, he began to say, This is an evil generation. They seek a sign, and there shall be no sign given to it, but the sign of Jonas the prophet. For as Jonas was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South shall rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation, and condemn them. For she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this generation, and shall condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. But woe unto you Pharisees! For ye tithe mint and rue, and all manner of herbs, and pass over judgment, and the love of God. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Woe unto you Pharisees! For ye love the uppermost seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are as graves which appear not, and the men that walk over them are not aware of them. Then answered one of the lawyers and said unto him, Master, saying thou reproachest us also. And he said, Woe unto you also, ye lawyers! For ye laid men with burdens grievous to be borne, and ye yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe unto you, for ye build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly ye bear witness, 
that ye allow the deeds of your fathers. For they indeed kill them, and ye build their sepulchres. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I shall send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel until the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verses 29 through 32, and verses 42 through 51. End quote. As Christ has explicitly stated multiple times now, this generation is to be judged for their grievous sins. The blood of every prophet from Abel to Zecharias, the greatest being Christ, was to be required of this generation of Judeans. The Lord is long-suffering, but he is also just, which eventually necessitates a judgment. The last public sermon Jesus preached was without a doubt his harshest, a final roll call of all his judgments upon the religious leaders of Judea. Quote, Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say, and do not. For they bind heavy burdens, and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries, and enlarge the borders of their garments, and love the uppermost rooms at feasts, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the markets, and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But be not ye called Rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father, which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye devour widows' houses, and for pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold. And whosoever shall swear it by the altar, it is nothing. But whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift. Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it, and by all things thereon. And whoso shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it, and by him that dwelleth therein. 
And he that shall swear by heaven sweareth by the throne of God, and by him that sitteth thereon. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones, and of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Because ye build the tombs of the prophets, and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, and say, If we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves, that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets, and wise men, and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel until the blood of Zacharias, son of Berechias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, verses 1. Through 39. End quote. Once again, Christ lays the blood of all his prophets at the feet of this generation. He promises that their house will be left desolate, yet again foretelling the eventual fate of the very temple he was preaching in. This measure would finally be filled when this generation willingly took Christ's blood upon them, fulfilling his word spoken just the day before. Quote, Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children 
The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 22 through 25, end quote. It should be abundantly clear by now that the generation spoken of by Christ throughout the Gospels is not some future unfulfilled generation. It is one that has already been judged for the greatest crime in human history. Quote, and with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, verse 40. End quote. As Christ comes to the earthly Jerusalem before the Passover, he weeps as he prophesies its coming destruction. Quote, and when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee, that thine enemy shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knowest not the time of thy visitation. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. End quote. The majestic vista that Christ would have seen from this vantage point is described by the theologian Alfred Edersheim. Quote, what a panorama over which to roam with hungry eagerness. At one glance he would see before him the whole city, its valleys and hills, its walls and towers, its palaces and streets, and its magnificent temple, almost like a vision from another world. There could be no difficulty in making out the general features of the scene. Altogether the city was only 33 stadia, or about four English miles, in circumference. Within this compass dwelt a population of 600,000, according to Tacitus but according to Flavius Josephus, amounting at the time of the Passover to between two and three million. From the temple, end quote. It should not be hard to imagine the sorrow that our Messiah felt as he witnessed this city for one of the last times before his ascent into heaven. Knowing its fate had been sealed and that calamities would soon be inflicted upon it. Immediately after Christ's Scathing rebuke of the Pharisees seen in Matthew 23, his apostles ask when this event Christ had just spoken of, i.e., the destruction of the temple, would come to pass. We see his answer in triplicate. Quote, Verily I say unto you, This generation shall not pass, till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. The Gospel of Matthew. 24, verses 34 through 35. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away, till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, verses 32 through 33. Verily I say unto you, that this generation shall not pass, till all these things be done. Heaven and earth shall pass away but my word shall not pass away. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, verses 30 through 31. End quote. Christ is remarkably clear in the timing and specificity of this prophecy. This generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. 
The timing of this event is unequivocally stated by our Lord. That it appears three times makes it all the more significant. The princeps Titus Flavius Vespasianus was given charge of the Roman legions in Judea by his father, the Emperor Vespasian. During the siege, he entrenched and attacked Jerusalem from all sides. Quote, and now, as this city was engaged in a war on all sides, from these treacherous crowns of wicked men, the people of the city, between them, were like a great body, torn in pieces. Flavius Josephus, The War of the Jews, Book 5. End quote. Zechariah prophesies in shocking detail the horrific conditions that would presage the destruction of the temple. Quote, then said I, I will not feed you. That that dieth, let it die. And that that is to be cut off, let it be cut off. And let the rest eat every one the flesh of another. And I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder, that I might break my covenant, which I had made with all the people. And it was broken in that day. And so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Book of Zechariah, chapter 11, verses 9 through 11. End quote. The temple is called the beauty of holiness four separate times in the Old Testament. First Chronicles, chapter 16, verse 29. Second Chronicles, chapter 20, verse 21. Psalm 29, verse 2. And Psalm 96, verse 9 and its gates are called beautiful twice within the New Testament. Acts chapter 3, verses 2 and 10. The staff called beauty is therefore a symbolic representation of the temple, a signifier of the old covenant, and it's passing away. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. These scenes from Zechariah would play out throughout the siege of Jerusalem. Quote, She then attempted a most unnatural thing, and snatching up her son, who was a child sucking at her breast, she said, O thou miserable infant, for whom shall I preserve thee in this war, this famine, and this sedition? As soon as she said this, she slew her son, and then roasted him, and eat the one half of him. Flavius Josephus, The War of the Jews, Book 6. End quote. Like Christ also states in Matthew 24, Luke 21, and Mark 13, not one stone would be left upon another. Quote, now as soon as the army had no more people to slay or to plunder, because there remained none to be the objects of their fury, for they would not have spared any had there remained any other work to be done, Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and the temple. It was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was left nothing to make those that came thither Believe it had ever been inhabited. Flavius Josephus, The Wars of the Jews, Book 7. End quote. The destruction was so toil, so complete, that travelers could not even tell that a great city had ever inhabited that land. What makes Josephus' account of this destruction even more stunning is that he, being a Pharisee, was ignorant of Christ's prophecies, that he so closely mirrors what Christ and John the Baptist foretold is nothing short of miraculous. The Messiah's clear words above were fulfilled within that generation, precisely forty years after he spoke them, the biblical number of both a generation and testing. 
The Lord Jesus Christ's disputations with the Pharisees is an unmistakable narrative that clearly evinces itself throughout the Gospels. As we have seen laid out, Christ's earthly ministry is an unmistakably vivid struggle between the vestiges of the Old Covenant and the testator of the New. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 16. Now Matthew 15, Mark 7, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, and 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 all detail the direct repudiation and refutation of the occultic doctrines of the Pharisees, doctrines now codified within the Babylonian Talmud. To not understand the earthly and spiritual struggle between Christ and that wicked generation is to truly not understand a pivotal aspect of the Gospels as a whole. I say this not from a place of pride, but profound sadness and humility, as I was in much the same state of ignorance for much of my life. It is only through the guidance and instruction of the Holy Spirit that I was able to unlearn so much of the error that I had been taught in my youth. And the truth of Christ's Olivet Discourse and its fulfillment in 70 AD is staggering, both for its precision and detail. It is, without a doubt, one of the most incredible prophecies in the Holy Bible. That this divine fulfillment of biblical prophecy has been erroneously projected onto some future generation. That these timeless truths have been obscured by over a century of Schofield's utterly alien doctrines causes me profound grief. Quote, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them, which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 7, verse 51 through 52. End quote. Like a ball. 
Schwester. 